Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the LSE. My name is Paul Miners. I'm chair of the Court of Governors of the LSE. It's my pleasure to welcome you here, students, uh, academics, alumni, um, friends of the uh, friends of the school, uh, and and the press. Um, we are delighted to have uh, Isaac Herzog um, to address us um, today. Um, Mr. Herzog is going to speak for 15 minutes or so, and then we're going to allow well over that time for questions and answers afterwards. And I know that Mr. Herzog is very much looking forward to that aspect of his engagement with us today at the LSE. Uh, Mr. Herzog is the most senior politician from Israel to address uh, an audience uh, at the LSE for a long time. Um, And many of you will know his background. He comes from a family of uh, Israeli leaders. Um, He has a distinguished academic background and extensive uh, service um, in office, uh, ministerial responsibilities um, from housing and construction um, to tourism, welfare and social services, and key involvement in issues relating to security and Israel's position uh, in a broader context. And again, I know that Mr. Herzog uh, is very uh, happy to discuss and answer those questions. Uh, So he is a um, a respected guest. Uh, We keep treat our guests um, with respect at LSE, and, uh, but at the same time, uh, nobody comes to the LSE without expecting a challenging engagement um, from uh, our student body. And we're richer for that, particularly <coughs> if it's done in a constructive and uh, polite way. So Mr. Herzog will speak uh, for uh, 15 minutes or so, and uh, he'll then go back to the table from uh, the rostrum, and I will chair uh, the question answer. So Uh, May I formally invite uh, Mr. Herzog. Thank you. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Miners. Thank you, Professor Kelly. I'm really happy to be here with students, faculty, and friends of LSE, a very distinguished academic institution. And I'm happy to be here as an Israeli leader because these days it's not so simple to be an Israeli leader amongst student bodies around Europe and around Britain in a way that doesn't really enable an open, frank discussion with a fairer attitude and more objective picture of the situation that we see around us. Let me just say that as we speak, two Israelis were badly wounded in a terrorist attack in the Judean area. As they were just touring around and seeing nature, they were attacked and shot at by Palestinian terrorists, and this is another example of the situation we are in. Ten years ago, I served as Minister of Housing. I was in Sharon's government. I am a member of the Labour Party. Currently, I chair the Israeli Labour Party. I'm the leader of the Israeli opposition. I will deliberate about it further on. But ten years ago, our government took a decision to unilaterally pull out our settlers brothers and sisters from the Gaza Strip in order to enable yet another step towards peace. 
We were heavily challenged. I was Minister of Housing, and I was asked by citizens of Israel, do you think it's the right process? Do you think it, it is the right thing to do? Why are you taking us out of our homes? For 30 years we've been dwelling here, growing our children, developing our farms, and you have decided to uproot us unilaterally without any return or consideration from the Palestinian side and bring us back to our border with Gaza. And we told them and we promised the possibility of a new Hong Kong in Gaza. The idea that Gaza will flourish independently and so we showed for the first time in history that settlers can be pulled, uh, pulled out. Actually, there was a precedent which was taken by Menachem Begin as we pulled out of Sinai during the peace treaty with Egypt. But here, for the first time, we've done it with the Palestinians. And let's say 10 years after that Gaza has become the thorniest issue in the region, has become a base of terror, a launching pad of missiles against Israel time and again. In the last summer, over a million Israeli citizens were in shelters. And the question arises, therefore, is what is the right venue? This came about under Sharon because Sharon felt that there is no possibility of a bilateral peace process. And he opted towards unilateralism, the great Sharon, which was viewed as a villain by so many people around the world and in Israel itself. We labor challenged Sharon time and again. At that time, we lost uh, to him in the elections. And thereafter, due to his decision to pull out from Gaza, we joined his government. But the result, let's look at the result. The balance sheet doesn't show any advancement. On the contrary, the question arises amongst Israelis is, can we make peace? Three months ago, I lost the elections to Benjamin Netanyahu. I led a vast coalition. This was a tight race. Towards the end of the race, Netanyahu picked up. He picked up because many Israelis felt a sense of fear from the circumstances surrounding us. Let me say clearly that when it comes to the fight against terror, I am there all out with no mercy because when we fight terror, we also try to protect the values of democracy and we also try to protect the ability to make peace. I'm a sincere, adamant believer in peace. I believe that we can make peace with the Palestinians. I've been meeting many Palestinian leaders in recent years. I've met with President Abbas a couple of times. I definitely believe that he is the person to talk to. But I believe at the end that the only way to do so is by bringing people to the table. The only way to do so is by sitting one in front of the other, talking about the problems and trying to resolve the conflict. But instead of that, what we are seeing is an onslaught against Israel all over the world. An onslaught which calls for boycotting, divestments, sanctions, Unilateral steps again. Unilateralism in the international arena is a huge mistake. The primate rule in the international arena should be negotiations. The primate rule, as we discuss uh, peace processes, is talking one to the other and not blaspheming one against the other constantly by taking unilateral steps, calling to boycott Israel, blaming Israel for all the problems of the world, which, of course, 
is unjustified under any circumstances. On the contrary, when one looks with a bird's eye view on the Middle East, one sees a very tumultuous and problematic region. First and foremost, as once you guys see, you see the people being beheaded by ISIS, you understand that there is a major threat to the region at large. And that threat is half an hour, an hour flight from our borders. And as Israelis and Arabs around see the same threat, they understand the situation is changing dramatically. ISIS on the one hand, Syria totally disintegrated on the other, Hezbollah, a major terrorist organization supported by Iran on the northern front, basically holding hijacked, uh, holding Lebanon hijacked. Hamas on the south, uh, refueling again with missile capability, and the region under huge pressure from Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Libya, and the like. One has to see that picture and understand that this is a major challenge to the world and a major challenge to, uh, I would say, international law and order. Because here comes the issue whereby a major engine of terror and hate, infiltration of terror organizations uh, all throughout the region, meaning Tehran, is coming around and trying to push and shove dramatically into all corners of the region, trying to undermine the region all totally and create a new order, new Islamic fundamentalist order, and that, of course, has direct bearing on the situation vis-a-vis us and the Palestinians, but more importantly, has direct bearing on peace and stability in the region. And therefore, in front of our eyes emerges a new coalition, emerges a coalition of moderate nations who share the same fear like us, the same fear against Iran holding nuclear weapons. Looking forward down the road, a few decades down the road, what will that empire do when it holds nuclear weapons together with a strong fundamentalist Islamic belief? What does this cocktail envision towards world stability, even European stability? And in these very days, as the superpowers are holding negotiations with Iran, this is the question. The question will be, what will happen down the road? Can there be a vision of peace or not? And let me say, of course, that this is a test to the leadership of the world, the famous six nations who are negotiating with Iran. Because the moment of truth is nearing, and we are there right this moment. By the end of June, an agreement has to be concluded, and that agreement should be ironclad in order to promise and preserve stability and um, sanity, I would say, in the region, in light of the fact that Iran is unleashing terror activities throughout the region. This is the major question. And this has direct bearing on our capability of negotiating with the Palestinians and trying to resolve the conflict yet again. Look, I lead the opposition in Israel. Between me and Netanyahu, there's a sea change on many issues. I make it a major point abroad not to criticize the government of Israel because I do it at home in the plenary of the Knesset. We are an open, aggressive democracy, very strong press, where the right of free speech is as far as one can imagine, laid out by the 
strongest arm of government in Israel, which is the Supreme Court. In my, co- in my opposition, and let me explain a bit, we have today in the Knesset around nine or ten parties, some of them in the coalition led by Netanyahu. It's a hung coalition. It's basically very short, small. It's 61, whilst I lead an opposition of 59. But my opposition of 59 includes the polar views in Israeli politics. One of them is, of course, the Victor Lieberman's party on the right, but also includes a major, major Arab party, which is composed of over 10% of parliament. And that Arab party includes at least four different streams of pan-Arabism, including, interestingly so, in my opposition, I have the sister party of the Muslim Brotherhood. So having the Muslim Brotherhood in my opposition or the sister party of the Muslim Brotherhood in my opposition is something I would say probably unknown to any one of you. And I'm trying to hold an opposition, of course, which has polar views, but yet again challenge Netanyahu on the many, many issues of the day. But when it comes to the issue, when it comes to the issue of defensive security of Israel, there is no argument on that. We will protect our citizens as much as needed against terror. We will have to fight terror in order to be able to stretch our hand for peace. And I've said that to my Palestinian friends many times. And I'm willing to argue here with many people because there are demonstrators outside who didn't want to hear a different voice from Israel or don't even understand what Israel is all about who don't understand the just cause of the state of Israel, of the Jewish people. A democracy which has 20% minority, minorities, Muslims, Christians, Druze, and Circassians, who enjoy full equality amongst the people of the nation, very wide free speech and human rights, civil rights, and of course, trying to include them as much as possible in all streams of life. And let me conclude before I open the floor for questions, A few words about the unique multiculturalism that is evolving in Israel. And it's a big debate in our country. We have various groups. We have ultra-Orthodox groups. We have immigrants who came from over 100 countries, who came out of the plight for ancient Zion to become the new homeland of Israel. And, of course, Arabs, Christians, Muslims, Druze, Bedouin, Lifestyles of all, of, all the, of all capabilities, lifestyles such as kibbutzim, moshavim, city dwellers and villages, everything is around. We don't shy away from our challenges. We've debated them in recent elections. And the elections were difficult and painful. And we will challenge Netanyahu and try to replace him. But when it comes to the good name of my country, I'll be here and everywhere to defend and protect it as much as possible to be its, I would say, to be its representative wherever needed and to present its case and argue back home as to the need to change it as much as possible towards my philosophy, my beliefs, or my movement's beliefs. I want to thank you all heartedly for being with us today, and I open the floor for questions on all issues. So far, you've been quiet and tranquil, and I'm expecting aggressive debate. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Herzog. I'm going to suggest that you stay there yeah, yeah, and sure. 
because this is a not a tiered room, it's flat, and so I'm probably going to have to stand as well to make sure that I uh, bring questions from throughout the room. Um, what I would like to do is ask that when you, uh, when I pick you out to ask your question, if you could firstly wait for the microphone. <coughs> Secondly, if you're comfortable, please let us know who you are and where you come from, uh, and probably stand up if you feel <coughs> comfortable in doing that. If you don't feel comfortable in doing it, then remain seated and don't say um, uh, who you are. And I'll take questions um, in groups uh, and uh, and then hand over to Mr. Hosea. Just remember, please. Try to make the questions, because if they become speeches, it just means that other people here will have less time to ask their question as well. And uh, so I'm going to take the first question from uh, the, uh, the back, uh, the lady uh, with the headscarf, and then I'm going to take this gentleman here, and then another gentleman uh, uh, two rows from the back. Those are my first, first three. Uh, hi, good afternoon, Mr. Hazel. But uh, you need to speak to the microphone. All right. Well, thank you very much for being here. Uh, despite the challenging circumstances, you're here for us. Um, my name is Sana Musharraf. I come from Pakistan, a state which has had no foreign relations with your state. And it has been very confusing for me throughout my life what exactly I don't want to believe what the media wants me to believe. And I don't want to believe in the history books which are taught uh, with a particular objective. I'd like to hear from you, in your view, what are the fundamental Israeli values that are under threat um, and facing the hostility in the League of Nations? Thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen in the fifth row and the blue jacket. Hi, uh, Ben White. Um, in the election Sorry. campaign, uh, you talked about what you envisaged by a two-state solution, uh, and that included Israel retaining the uh, illegal settlement blocks of Gush Etzion, Ma'ali Adumim, and Ariel, uh, as well as a security and military presence in the occupied Jordan Valley, and Jerusalem remaining Israel's so-called eternal capital. Um, you also supported the initial exclusion of Hanin Zabi, who sits in the Arab coalition you were uh, praising a minute ago, and you criticized Netanyahu for not hitting Gaza hard enough last summer. So given all of that, uh, do you think that the uh, growing boycott uh, is not just a response to the policies of the Israeli government, <coughs> but to the options that are presented by the so-called liberal opposition? Thank you. Then, uh, gentlemen, three rows from the back. Thank you. That's right. Hello. Good afternoon. My name's Omar. I'm a master's student at the LSE. And essentially, my question to Mr. Herzog, once again, just thank you for coming to address your name us. Again? My name is Omar. Abu Bakr. Sorry? Omar. Omar. Ah, only Omar. Okay, thanks. Sorry. Okay, and my question is essentially, you spoke about leading a block of opposition in the Knesset, which included Arab delegates and Arab representatives. But on the 7th of June of this year, you explicitly said that you would not ever envisage having an Arab majority in the Knesset or having any sort of competent representation of the Arab um, groups of people within the Israeli and Palestinian territories. So I was wondering how this fits into your notion of actually human rights, progressive, a multicultural state. Essentially, you're undermining yourself. You're contravening everything you propound to be as fact and as something which you feel as essential to progression. So I was just wondering how that fits into everything. Thank you. I'll start with you, Omar, because I think you misread my speech. My speech was delivered at the IDC Center in Herzliya. And where I've said that in terms of Israel, 
if there is no separation of the land between us and the Palestinians in the final status agreement, we may skid into becoming a one state. And a one state means that it will be an Arab-Jewish state, means that there will be at the end a majority of Palestinian delegates. And I don't want that. I want my, my country was founded on the premise that it will be a safe haven for the Jewish people following the atrocities, following the Holocaust, and, and following the United uh, the Security Council resolution of uh, November 29, 1947, about the partition plan in Palestine, which led to the creation of Israel. Following 1967, and until today, the issue of the territories, the West Bank, hasn't been fully determined except the vision of the Oslo Accords to lead towards a two-state solution. I'm an, I'm an adamant believer in the two-state solution. I believe that Palestine should be established near Israel, adjacent to Israel, neighboring Israel, the two states, a Palestinian state and and Israel. But in order to reach that stage, we need to be bold as leaders on both sides. And you can't just take unilateral steps on on one side or ignore the premise of the two-state solution on the other. And therefore, I criticized the right in Israel, who believe in full annexation of the land, thereby leading to a one state, thereby losing the whole idea of a safe haven of the Jewish people in a state which is fully democratic and equal for all its citizens. That is why I spoke about that. And therefore, of course, I see the Arab representation in the Knesset and the Arab population in Israel as an integral part and fully equal to anyone else in Israel, and I've, I've, I've said it, and I believe in it, I've done it, I've led it as minister, and of course we have very good relations with our partners in the opposition. So that is one thing. But in order to reach that stage of a two-state solution, I expect Abbas to say, I'm sitting down and negotiating, and I expect Netanyahu to say, I'm sitting down and negotiating, and with no ifs and buts, and just sit down and negotiate because it's feasible despite all problems. And I don't say that one can reach an agreement on all issues, core issues tomorrow. I say one needs to talk and lead a process and sort out the issues and get down to the bottom of it all. There are many thorny issues. Sometimes they look impossible to cross. And you want to know something? Both peoples are losing hope. Both peoples are losing hope. And when they lose hope, it's becoming dangerous. And we should encourage, and that's what my aim is all about. But the problem is that outside, the voices against Israel outside, do not accept the fact that responsibility lies with the Palestinians as well. They forget. They forget Palestinian refusals throughout. They forget terror activities and suicide bombers throughout. And they forget even the tragic event of today. If you think that the killing of an Israeli, because I've just learned that the Israeli has died, unfortunately, from another terror attack, you think that helps build trust. And I don't say there hasn't been faults on the Israeli side. Of course there have been. But that's why leaders should rise to the moment and try their best to make a change. And whilst the international premise speaks about two states... It should encourage negotiations on two states and not punishments and not boycotting and not trying to alienate 
and say an Israeli artist can't appear here or an Israeli product can't be sold there. That won't help anybody. That will only make people more stubborn because nobody in Israel buys that. On the contrary, it only leads further to the belief that nobody, in fact, is willing to support a peace process whereby we would like to have guarantees that preserve our security interests. And let's, and let's drill down to one major issue. As we pulled out of Gaza, we've seen what we've got. So today, Israelis, even in the elections, whilst I lead a center-left bloc, came to me and said, do you believe that we can have enough security precautions whilst we see what's going on around? And my answer is yes, but we need to work on it. And we need strength and goodwill to sort out all the issues of the day so that we preserve the most inherent security interests of Israel forever. Because that's the baseline for any peace process. Now, Mr. White, first and foremost, let's understand what I've said during the elections. I've presented the notion that comes out of President Bill Clinton's parameters of December 2000. And they came forward following the Camp David negotiations of summer of 2000. And those guidelines speak about the fact that settlement blocks, major settlement blocks, will be annexed by Israel in return for other land, what you call swap of land. This is still, in my mind, the baseline for the division between the two nations, the two states. Settlement blocks will comprise about 80% of the settlers. And this is the underlying rule of the Clinton parameters. And I've said it in Gush Etzion. I sincerely believe that Gush Etzion is a block that protects Jerusalem. But all in all, let's put the facts straight. The whole issue of the settlers, the whole territory of the settlements, is not more than about 4% of the land in dispute. And therefore, it's feasible to reach an agreement still on the basis of the settlement blocks and swap of land. This is there. It requires courage and it requires a boldness by both leaders and, and peoples. And it requires building trust. Now, we, with respect to Hanin Zoabi. Hanin Zoabi is a, a member of Balad. Balad is uh, on the more extreme um, on the more extreme side of Israeli politics, clearly, and uh, Hanin Zobi said things which were unacceptable to me totally during Operation Protective Edge in the summer. Because before that, three Israelis youngsters were butchered, kidnapped and butchered, uh, and three boys who came out of school on their way home, texting their mothers and fathers, we're on our way home, and they were kidnapped and butchered and thrown into a ditch <coughs> and found later. And she said that, they, they, that these are not terrorists who killed them. And the Knesset had a major debate, and it was decided by the Ethics Committee of the Knesset to rule against her. And I supported that, because there are certain issues that need to be maintained within the basic rules of the game. There's no way one can even hint as to the ability of supporting terror in any form and manner, undoubtedly. And therefore, this is simple hate. You cannot encourage in any way an atrocity of this nature by 
indirectly or directly commenting about it. And lastly, on Gaza, one has to understand the situation. I believe that the Gaza situation needs to be treated internationally by a major diplomatic effort that will aim to demilitarize Gaza or Hamas, that will open up Gaza to its citizens and enable them a better life, that will bring the Palestinian Authority into Gaza to take control. However, the parties concerned are not really interested. Abbas doesn't want to go in. He's fearful of Hamas, although he has to go in because under the Oslo Accords, Gaza should be under Palestinian rule. And we are not talking about a three-state solution. We're talking about a two-state solution. And furthermore, Hamas has filled up and stacked uh, itself with weapons, missiles, aid from Iran, ships of smugglers throughout Sinai of smuggled missiles, and were then pounded on the heads of my kids and everybody else's kids, and we've sat in the same shelter that I've sat as a child in 1967. So you cannot expect anybody to sit idly by and say, don't hit hard back against those who launch those missiles from their homes, from their living rooms, from their mosques, from their hospitals, from their shops, from their schools. We have to put things in perspective. And believe me, if there's anything that causes pain to me and to many Israeli citizens, is the tragedies of, of, of Gazan citizens. And anything possible to prevent that, we've tried. But at the end, when you're shot at, you fire back. And when you're in shelters, you fire back. And when you want to stop it, you try to stop it. What can you do? You see somebody from the air, you see him launching a, a, a major rocket on your house, you uh, undermine it immediately by attacking back, with all due respect. These are the rule of, rules not only of self-defense, but of trying to prevent a terror organization from using the worst type of terror against our citizens. But we have to try and prevent another round. And to do so, we need to get the parties concerned into a certain process. And it requires that Hamas understand that we should move towards demilitarization. It requires differentiating between the citizens of Gaza and Hamas. And it requires all the neighboring countries to think how best to open up Gaza while scrutinizing the, its security and preventing smuggling of weapons into Gaza. And lastly, uh, our, friends, Anan, our friend Anna from Pakistan, thank you for your question, because I do believe that people ought to learn all the intricacies of the conflicts and see the case of both sides. My fear is that there is an ongoing process of trying to undermine the legitimacy of Israel to exist. There's no way, and I tell it to all, everybody, all our enemies and all those who are out there attacking us vehemently, there is no way Israel will be alienate, eliminated. There is no one who will eliminate Israel. We will do, and I say it as an Israeli patriot, we will do whatever we can to preserve our security and well-being. And yet... I believe that apart from that, we should move forward and bring hope to the region and try to bring stability and peace to the region. And what I'm finding within the family of nations is not only indifference, but sometimes 
inexplicable hate, including in the region, people who don't understand the uniqueness of Israeli democracy. The fact that members of the parliament in our country are going around all over the world and in Israel and saying the worst of the worst against the state is also a source of pride. It's a source of pride because our democracy is a unique uh, example, not only in our region, which doesn't enjoy democracy at all, but also throughout the world. We are, we are a country of the rule of law. Um, the legal system is as strong as ever. The press is as strong as ever. And yet we debate Netanyahu and the right on some of their desires to contain and curtail some of the public discourse in Israel. But that's okay. That happens in every democracy. And therefore, what we are aiming at, really, is the original value, which was to be a beacon unto the world, to invest in sciences, to help humanity, to bring values of uh, justice for all to the family of nations, and that's what we are trying amidst the tragedies that we are facing in our region. Please. Thank you very much. Um, the first three questions were exemplary in uh, being uh, forcefully worded but pol politely expressed. Um, I'm going to take um, uh, a lady in row three and then a gentleman uh, behind her and then another lady over there. Yes, that's it. Oh, my name is Irena. I'm a Czech-Israeli and PhD student here. Uh, Mr. Herzog, Sorry, Anna, could you speak louder, please, and yeah. clearer? My name is Irena. I'm Czech-Israeli, and I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. How do you see Jerusalem? Do you think that in the case we have a revival of the negotiations, would you be in favor of division of Jerusalem? Thank you very much. Uh, the gentleman there. That's right, correct. Hi, my name is Josh Seatler. I'm the co-president of the LSE-SU Israel Society. I want to say thank you very much for coming. Thank you to LSE for putting this on. But um, I want to ask the question, uh, how would you respond to people that boycott Israel on, on their, what they would call moral, on the moral basis, and they would, and they would make arguments that BDS is, is acceptable and the boycotts and the sanctions are, are um, they would say, or they would argue are, are okay and they are legitimate. How would you respond to them, how would you say that maybe they're not acceptable, they're not the way forward, and they're not maybe the best solution to the problem? Thank you. Thank you. And then finally, uh, the lady with the microphone. Hi, my name is Judy Wong, and I am an MSc student at the LSE. Um, sorry, I'm really nervous. Um, but um, so Israel was um, the first Middle Eastern country to recognize the People's Republic of China, and currently um, the PRC is the third largest trading partner of Israel. And you have uh, repeatedly emphasized the uh, democratic values of Israel. So you know, China being a country for whom um, democratic values are not a priority, how do you reconcile you know the the need to maintain? Um, this trade and friendly relations and, and Israel's uh, pro-democratic um, values. Thank you. Okay, Irena. Uh, look, the issue of Jerusalem is one of the basic core issues of the conflict. And Jerusalem is a source of belief and uh, religious um, emotions that is incomparable to anything else in the world. 
and therefore it is basically accepted that this issue should be left to the end of any process. Right now we've gone back light years. Uh, we, haven't, we are not there. We have, haven't even started touching the core issues at all, which are borders and security and issues of refugees and, uh, and the ability of the Palestinian state to function. It's not there yet. We need to enter into a process whereby I said in the elections I would aim for confidence-building measures which would enable both sides to move back and get back to the table. So I prefer leaving Jerusalem as such because it's extremely complicated. I believe there are many innovative solutions. Also, the Clinton parameters spoke about special arrangements in Jerusalem. The most important thing is to preserve religious freedom in Jerusalem, to enable an open city with no boundaries, and not to split the city, but rather, by all means, leave it unified and find innovative ideas uh, further on. Uh, I'll answer Judy's question first, then answer you, Josh. Judy, you know, what you learn here is what, not what you see outside. Um, you aim for certain values, but international relations are different because at the end of it all, um, there are nations who function the way they function. You cannot ask any nation around the world uh, to avoid relations with China. How could you? I think it's a major mistake to avoid relations with China. Uh, China is a very important player in the world arena and a member of the Security Council. And what it has to do with issues within China is part of uh, the deliberations of the Chinese people. But there's no way one would expect Israel or any, in my mind, any other major player to uh, cut off relations with China because of its uh, political structures. And uh, uh, moreover, I would say that when you look from the outside, and I'm not a judge of anything, I see many processes in many nations, simmering from within and from without, and you do not know what type of changes will come about. And Josh, look, the issue of the campaign against Israel, the boycott, divestments and sanctions, is becoming an issue which is already a kind of, I would say, mixed with deep Israel hate, which simmers throughout certain echelons of politics and public body around the world, moving towards the economic sphere, and part of a brainwashing machine that we see in certain quarters of student faculties and bodies around the world. And I'm here to combat it. I'm here exactly for that purpose. I'm here to explain that there is a distorted view of Israel. There's, there's a distorted vision and picture of Israel. Believe me, we quarrel, we debate, we argue. Let us change the issue in Israel from within. It has nothing to do with pressure from outside. Pressure from outside brings an adverse result. First of all, boycotting Israeli products or boycotting Israeli products from the settlements simply will, enable, will uh, lead to much more of an unemployment of Palestinians in the territories and will not lead 
in my mind, to any real result, tangible result towards peace. On the contrary, the people of Israel will stick together against any boycott process, wherever it may be. It's totally unacceptable. And moreover, the issue of boycotting is unacceptable in international relations because there is an ability to negotiate, because it's a conflict between nations who share the same land and need to reach an agreement, need to reach a painful solution, need, yes, to pay a heavy price for peace. This is my dream and my vision, and I intend to lead for that. And most people of Israel would accept it if they know that there is a partner that shakes hands and moves for peace and preserves security and fights still. And that's what we've got to understand and break this mental block of lack of trust between the peoples. There is a major sea of lack of trust between the leaders and the peoples. And there is a lot of pain. But that doesn't mean nations cannot solve it. They have to. And the call has to be for all leaders concerned to sit down and talk. But no boycotting, no undermining of the right of Israel to exist, and no boycotting and blasphemizing my nation because it's kind of becoming an avant-garde type phenomena in various campuses. Please. First, thank you so much for speaking to us today. My name is Desiree Shea. I'm a PhD student in the Department of Government. And um, what's your thesis about? <laughs> I think that would take too long and turn this into a speech. Um, but my question... So, Professor Kerry, Kelly, there is no political theory. Look around. You can't prove any political theory. Okay. Um, but you mentioned not only the need for negotiations, but the need for trust and for confidence-building measures. And you mentioned recent attacks as reducing Israeli trust in Palestinians as a partner for peace. I was wondering if you could speak on some concrete things you think Israel should be doing, the government and particularly the military, to ensure that Palestinians can view your country as a partner for peace. Two, two people back from direct back from you. Yes. Hi, I'm Hillary Stoffer. I'm a visiting fellow at... Hillary, the, you said? Hillary, yes. Yeah. Li- like the other Hillary. Um, <laughs> I'm a, a Well, her husband started here, don't forget. <laughs> Uh, a visiting fellow here at uh, the Center for the Study of Human Rights. And I've been listening attentively to everything you've said about uh, the, the vibrancy of Israeli democracy and the disagreements in the Knesset. Uh, right now, there's been some disagreements with perhaps um, my own country. Every time uh, Obama or others are seen to not agree with everything Israeli does or, Israel does or says, um, people, you know, Netanyahu or whoever else gets very angry and writes nasty articles about it, isn't part of vibrant democracy, disagreeing with your friends outside of Israel sometimes as well. Thank you. Given, uh, one row behind. Hi, my name's Talia. Um, my question, I agree with you that I desperately want there to be a two-state solution as soon as possible. What do you see as the role of people around the world who agree with you and share that concern, and specifically the role of the Jewish diaspora? Okay, Desiree. Um, 
I think that confidence-building measures that need to be taken by Israel, and I presented it also as a public platform, include, first and foremost, um, lifting of roadblocks and security pre- uh, wherever is possible, security measures that enable free movement of goods and services within the West Bank. Uh, secondly, freezing of settlement uh, activity outside the major settlement blocks. And uh, lastly, um, uh, major steps that enable economic growth in the Palestinian uh, territories as well as uh, immediate direct talks between the two governments. But I linked it with parallel steps on behalf of the Palestinians, namely total freeze of activities in international tribunals, enabling a free dialogue rather than a dialogue that's been influenced by uh, considerations that make both sides stringent and unable to move forward. Uh, I think that the confident, there's a large list of confidence-building measures that ought to be implemented in order to build trust between the leaderships. And I've said in my campaign that one of the first things I'll do, I'll try to go to Ramallah, where the Palestinian government is situated, and try to speak to the Palestinian leadership and public and parliament, and try to lower the tension and melt down the pressure. And I also called on the Palestinians to do the same to try and talk to the Israelis and leave aside a lot of rhetoric which goes back to the same old stuff. And here I go to the question of Talia because I think the young generation around the world has a lot to do with the young generation on both sides of Israelis and Palestinians. There's a much larger common denominator of young generations around the world that can bring about a dialogue, a dialogue that envisions how people live together, rather than the same old rhetoric of leaders, uh, which sometimes are locked within their fears. We should convince young people all over the world to partake in a process that enables young people from both sides to meet together and talk. Unfortunately, all of these efforts in recent years have faded away. Processes of bilateral nature or multilateral nature have not led to a major movement on both sides. And yet I tell you that whilst both peoples are fatigued and both peoples lack trust, instantaneously or rather quickly, if there are steps to, make, to lead a change, if there are issues that are brought about by the leadership and by the people bottom-up, by the grassroots, it can lead to a change. And this is my call for young people, including the Jewish diaspora, but not only. People who care, I think, should listen to both sides and try to find a way to lead them forward. I'm telling you that in, within Israel, in all in all parts of Israeli society, which is a multicultural society, there is a simmering from within. None of the groups in Israel are homogeneous. They're all asking questions. You want to know something, including amongst the settlers. People want to know the answers. 
and are looking for ways, and are doubting, and are asking questions. And I'm sure the same goes on the Palestinian side. But we don't hear those people. We don't see them. And we, brought to, we ought to bring them together to discuss issues together. And lastly, Hillary, we've touched upon an issue which is a big issue in Israeli public life. Yes, there is a certain clear rift between the Israeli administration and the American administration. I would say not on security issues, but on other issues. I uh, criticized the, the, the I criticize the criticism against the, the administration and President Obama because I believe that the American administration is trying its best both to be on Israel's side on critical issues of defense and security, but also as a player in the region. And as such, there should not be daylight between us and the administration, and we should build trust between us and the White House. It's a, it's a must. It's a prerequisite. It's a linchpin of Israeli defense strategy and policy, and also a linchpin as it comes to the strength of the moderate coalition of nations, which ranges from <clears throat> the Gulf states all the way to Morocco, including Egypt, Jordan, and the like. And, in my mind, in the long term, Palestine and Israel, as nations who lead towards peace and see from around vile forces of hate, treacherous hate, hate that brings about beheadings and rape and molestation and devastation all throughout the region. In my mind, in a future picture, there should have been a combined joint military force of moderate nations that's ready to deal with the deterioration in the region and prevent those hateful forces from uh, gaining success. There has been an international coalition formed against ISIL. We don't know how much it succeeds. It's doubtful. What we see is Iraq falling apart, Syria falling apart, and these forces are touching upon in the region, and we ought to share together. And there is a golden opportunity now of sharing together and working together, Israel and its allies in the region, in order to prevent those terrible forces from gaining further strength. Um, I have a, a, a gentleman there, um, and then a, another gentleman to his right, and then in a red show there. Redressing the uh, gender balance of the previous couple of questions. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Gregory. I'm a PhD student here. Uh, last March, uh, I'm in Israel, and I went for a few days to Israel to stop my studies and to vote for you as a prime minister and for your party. <laughs> and unfortunately... Uh, he, get, we, he deserves a vote of silence. Yeah, and, 
And unfortunately, uh, many of us were expecting for change and we were very frustrated and disappointed. And you are criticized in Israel for being not strong enough to oppose very populist and uh, aggressive leadership of Mr. Netanyahu. So do you believe that you are able to oppose this very kind of populist type of leadership? Is there a place for a new generation of the left leadership in Israel? And what can be done to increase the power of left and the reasonable voices in Israel in the current political situation? Thank you. There was a um, gentleman just that's right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for coming to speak with us. Um, like every religion. What's your name? Oh, Merad. Sorry. Pardon? Merad. Merad. Yes. Yeah. Um, so every religion has uh, extremist groups, um, and I, with the recent arson attack on the Christian church. In Israel, I was wondering, how would you specifically combat um, Jewish extremism in Israel? Very good question. That's right. Thank you. Um, coming back to the question um, Omar has asked you a while ago, uh, you said in your answer... No, I, I don't hear you well, so... Um, you can sorry. What's uh, your name again? Martin. Uh, I'm from there's the LSE. A, there's an acoustic issue here, yes. When yeah, sh- sorry about that. That's better, Martin. We can hear you now. Yeah. Okay, so you said in your answer that you wouldn't like in the two-state solution in the Jewish state, you wouldn't like a Muslim majority in the parliament. Uh, my question is, do you think that's the right way to go forward, you know, banning religious groups from, from having a majority in the parliament? You know, this may sound silly, but what if in the future, uh, uh, you know, the Christ, a significant number of Christian-influencing people uh, sort of questioning the legitimacy of the Israeli nation, then would you uh, ban the Christians from having a majority in the parliament? Well, thank you. Martin, you, you don't get my point, and I'll try to explain it again. Can I, right. can I, yeah, sure. I, can I just ask, I want to make sure that I'm... Thank you, Martin. Uh, I want to make sure I'm very fair. Is, if there's any member of the Palestine Society who would like to ask a question, I, I'm not sure that I've called anybody from them, and there may not be, but I, would, I, I know Mr. Herzog would be very happy to answer a question. Is anybody that would? So we, we have a gentleman... Uh, we have a gentleman... There. Okay. In the middle. Can we just uh, sure? Because we're, we're coming up to the end of time, and I, yeah. I want to make sure that everybody has a chance. So uh, I'm part of um, the Palestine Society and the Israeli Society. And your name? And my name is Ari. Uh, I'm American Israeli. Um, and I'm American part of Israeli member yeah. of the Palestine Society and yeah. the Israeli Society. Yeah. Uh, because I really that, believe. For all of you who don't understand the situation, it just is just an exemplification. <laughs> Uh, well, I like to know uh, both sides, and that's why I'm part of both. But uh, my question is about Israel's relationship with Hamas and um, how uh, if Israel will, wants to build peace, and you talk about bringing partners to the table, how does the policy of ignoring Hamas uh, effective? And do you think Israel needs to change its strategy regarding Hamas, given its deep-rooted support in Gaza and its functioning of a quasi-state there? And how do you expect to bring peace without Hamas? And uh, anybody else from the Palestine Society? Yes, please, if you don't mind, Professor. Yes, please. Yes. Uh, hi, thank you, Mr. Herzog, for your speech. Uh, my name is Mohammed, and I'm also a master student. Um, my name is Mohammed. Mohammed. And my, I'm also a master student at the LSE. And basically, my, my question is a very basic question about the two-state, one-state debate. Don't you think, kind of, the perpetuation of the two-state nation debate is kind of 
empowers extremist groups on both sides of the border, so in Israel and in Palestine. And isn't it time for us to start considering the one-state solution as a feasible solution in the future? Thank you. Okay, so I'll start with Martin again in order to explain again the issue which is an issue being debated in Israel for almost 50 years. The whole notion of Israel before 67, what what you'd call 67 borders, the whole notion is that within Israel proper today, it's about 80% Jewish majority and 20% non-Jewish minorities. And the debate is that if Israel annexes the territories which were taken uh, during the 1967 war, then, of course, there is equality. It loses Israel on, from an Israeli perspective of Israelis who, of Jews who came from all over the world to the ancient homeland. It means that the nature of the Jewish state, the characteristic of the Jewish state, the nation state of the Jewish people, which was declared already in the 1947 partition plan, whereby you have two states, a Jewish state and an Arab state, which means the Palestinian state. That, if that is over, it means that there may be an Arab majority, and I'm trying to explain to my own people that in order to move forward towards peace and creation of a Palestinian state is an interest for Israelis as well. This is my explanation. It has nothing to do in any form or manner in a derogatory way to hint something against the minorities. On the contrary, I'm a huge believer in, and I'm known for that, huge believer in full equality for all citizens of Israel, and I truly respect my colleagues from the Arab, uh, from the Arab party. But I'm trying to explain the question to the Israelis, those whose parents came from... Uh, the ashes of the Holocaust, or those who built their home after coming over from over 100 nations to build a new nation, a new homeland. And losing that characteristic is a major, major threat to Israel. And I also believe that the Palestinians themselves want to live in a Palestinian state of their own, where they have their own identity identified within their own premises. And this is the vision. That's how I relate to Muhammad's question. No, I rule out fully the idea of a one-state solution. Rule it out. And I'm fearful of that, of that notion. And I know there are academics who have written about it. But that is unacceptable. And by the way, the international rule believes in a two-state solution. This is what we ought to aim for. And whilst it looks difficult and complicated, and believe me, in Israel as well, it is definitely still possible, and one needs to speak and talk and make an effort, and not each one shunning in his corner and not moving towards a major process by building trust. Now, Gregory, thank you for your uh, indelible support. I uh, respect that. Over 800,000 Israelis voted for my faction, my party, which is a combination of two parties and is called the Zionist Union. And we led a large block and we had come forward with a good result. However, it is clear that the nation on the whole 
is still leaning more towards the idea that Israel ought to be more cautious and linked more to the right-wing views of Netanyahu. That was, that's the outcome. And we have to deal with it. And part of it, by the way, is a demand from my camp, the center-left camp, to understand better the innate fears and phobias of Israelis. And I demand it also from the crowd here and worldwide. This is not only a nation that has gone through trauma, but also has tried yet again, a time and again, to do something about the situation. We pulled out of Lebanon, we got Hezbollah. We pulled out of Gaza, we got Hamas. We have to do it by ways of agreements that are ironclad, that are supported by the international community, and that give us qualitative, strategic, military, and security edge. And this is what I find is lacking on the Palestinian side. They have to understand. They have to understand that even today in the West Bank, what prevents waves of terror is the fact that there is an Israeli military presence on the ground. And we have to enable that long term as part of security arrangements without derogating from the Palestinian sovereignty of that state to be created. And I think that discourse has to take place to understand what is our security border, the Jordan River, and how do we prevent forces from entering, and how do we prevent smuggling or missiles or weapons on our heads. And also, the Palestinians ought to get their safety net, because they are also fearful. They don't trust that we will ever leave, and they don't believe that we are serious. And both sides just undermine each other. And therefore, because of that, we are stuck. And my effort is to explain to the Israelis not only the discussion on security, but also the discussion on building trust. And it's not easy. Definitely not after each week's events. And on the other side, I also believe that the Israeli public discourse, which has come about in a huge wave of protest in the summer of 2011, which is unheralded, a social protest which has come about demanding fairer distribution of wealth, social justice, something which you all share, is a discourse which we ought to empower because it also is part of the considerations of the Israeli voters. And this is the dilemma. This is my, uh, the tension between the two issues, apart from many other issues. Let me just remind you that the social protest of summer 2011 brought into the city square 5% of our population. 5% of a nation's population in a city square one night demanding social justice with no violence. And yet again, none of that has led to any major change except a lot of frustration. But at least it's something to be proud of and to think how we make change. And I think my party gained as well from that too and re-strengthened and re reinvigorated itself. And together, today we are a very strong political power that ought to be, that must bring change to the Israelis on both fronts of equality, of fairness, of doing business, 
of social safety net and moving towards peace. This is my challenge and our leadership challenge to convince the Israelis further that there is hope, that we cannot give up. And that is exactly why I'm leading my party there and speaking with you here. Uh, Murad, you um, led a very interesting question, which is correct. We have Jewish zealots. We also suffer from Jewish fascism. Like any nation, like any nation, uh, we have people who throughout history have undermined our sovereignty by taking the law in their hands, by leading underground, by carrying out hate crimes. Yes, we have that as well. And we are leading full strength with our police and our judication and, and judicial system to uproot all of those elements, bring them to justice and punish and jail them. A very, very painful uh, event took place yesterday where a very important church has been uh, damaged and uh, burnt slightly in certain areas. Thank God not within the main hall. A very sad picture which we condemn fully. Members of my party were there today to express um, sorrow and condolences and share pain and combat those disgusting forces. I know that the nation is up in arms, the government, the police, Secret Service, and the Attorney General's office just to find those people and bring them to, uh, to, to court and jail. And yes, we have to deal with them. And we know that as, as we move forward on peace, we will see those forces rising up again. And we don't rule out that they may take arm in their hands. But let me, let me just remind you, as I started my speech here, on speaking of the pulling out from Gaza 10 years ago, the discussion then was that people may do that and they didn't. At the end, the Israeli Defense Forces came forward to the settlers and with a lot of pain, sorrow, and tears, managed to pull them out of Gaza. So I think it's one, yet again one of those challenges that we face as a society, and we will deal with it as, as forcefully as possible in light of the fact that uh, freedom of religion is a cornerstone of our democracy. And uh, uh, lastly, Ari, the issue of Hamas. Look, we, we should not be naive. We should understand what Hamas is all about. Hamas is an Islamic fundamentalist movement. As a social movement, they could be part of any society. Problem is that apart from leading a school system and social network, they also have a military arm which operates as an army which believes in carrying out terrorist activities. Look, Hamas has taken over Gaza by a coup. As we pulled out of Gaza a few months later, they basically took Gaza by a coup d'etat. With a strong military wing, they slaughtered all of the members, major members of the other, of the other parties, mostly Fatah, 
either enabling them to flee to the West Bank or killing them. And they took control of Gaza. And they run as a mini-state, you say, quasi-state. But an impossible situation because those who suffer mostly are the citizens. There's no human rights in Gaza, no women's rights in Gaza. No real vote by the people to decide whether they really want the Sharia law to apply or simply a terrorist organization taking over an area, a strip, and using it as a Hamastan-type launching pad. Whilst in the West Bank, there is no parallel to the flourishing of the economy, to the ability of people to live in peace. This is the dilemma also of the Palestinian people. This is part of a major debate within the Palestinian society. I, I, th- I think we ought to leave it to the Palestinian society to decide by a democratic process, but you cannot hold a democratic process in Gaza because those who go to the voting booths or the ballot boxes will be under arms. That's the dilemma. Let's not be naive about it. If you'd have a real poll within the Gazan citizens, I'm not sure they would want Hamas to reign over them. And Hamas calls for the destruction of Israel, and Hamas um, carries out terrorist attacks. And yet, in the current situation, I don't rule out a certain long-term ceasefire leading to a process of demilitarization, uh, bringing over the Palestinian Authority into Gaza through the, package, through the passages, and enabling an opening up of Gaza, because it, it is a tragic pressure cooker of the West kind. I met with the president of Cyprus a few days ago. And the president of Cyprus and his team reiterated a suggestion, which was that, that Cyprus, Limassol, will be kind of a front port for Gaza, where goods and services will be scrutinized before they enter Gaza. Innovative idea. But for this, you need the Egyptians. You need to have the Palestinian Authority involved and other players in the region who will partake in the process of, re- of ensuring for the, to the Israelis that no arms, ammunition, missiles, or explosives can be smuggled into Gaza. Right now, there is an increase in products uh, being uh, led into Gaza, and the number of uh, trucks, goods, and services are almost doubled. I hope it will ease up the pressure in Gaza, but whilst they dig tunnels, and we know that, under our doorsteps, like last summer, and whilst there are, there are elements of extre- more extreme than Hamas in the, in the strip itself carrying out launchings against Israel, it is a very, very touchy situation right now. Thank you all very, very much for being so attentive, quiet, listening, and deliberating. I really appreciate it.